If you have your Bible, go ahead and get that out. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 29. It's page 767 in your Bibles here. We'll be to that in just a minute. Acts chapter 29, page 767. Um, we'll be to that in just a second. So as you're turning to that, about 50 or 60 years before Jesus came, a man named Julius Caesar set out to conquer what's now modern-day France. It was called Gaul at the time. And he wanted to add it to the Roman Republic. So Caesar methodically, with his large army, destroyed over 800 different little towns and villages across Gaul over the course of about a decade. During that time, during those 10 years, it's estimated he enslaved probably about 3 million people as they conquered parts of the territory to then be his servants and Rome's servants. And, and some of that money that they, they took went to Rome. Some of that money they went, went to the soldiers. A lot of the money they took went to Caesar's pocket. So at the end of a decade, he had captured 3 million slaves. He had conquered 800 towns. He had conquered this area known as Gaul. And he was very powerful. And the Roman Senate, somewhere along the lines of that time, said, wow, if we don't get this guy in check, he's going to just take off and, and run away from us. So they called him back to Rome to kind of check in, to submit to their leadership as the Senate. And essentially, Caesar had a choice to make. He could either, do, he could either ignore the order and just say, forget you, and then he'd be charged with treason and likely executed. Or he could do what they said and go to Rome by himself and likely he has enemies, so likely they would have jumped him and, and killed him along the way. Or he could come and bring his whole army, which was illegal, because you can't march on Rome with an army. In those days, it would be called civil war. And so there's a, a little stream up on the north side of Italy called the Rubicon, and him crossing the Rubicon was him declaring with an army, declaring that he was, he was waging war on, on Rome itself. On January 10th, 49 BC, Julius Caesar and his large army entered Roman territory by crossing the Rubicon and declaring war on Rome itself, changing the world forever and giving us a phrase. Crossing the Rubicon has ever since been a, a phrase that we, we recognize. On November 6th, 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th president of the United States. Over the next couple of months, this was, this was a real uh, contentious time in our country. And over the next four months prior to his inauguration, seven southern states seceded from the Union, declared their intention to secede from the Union because of his anti-slavery views. He hadn't even been president for a day yet. And then on March the 4th, 1861, as he gave his first inaugural address, you can tell the, the tension in the country by his words. He ended the, the state, the address with these words, in your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. There's tension in the air as he gave his address and became president. And yet 39 days later, on April the 12th, 1861, South Carolina's militia bombed Fort Sumter, declaring civil war, and the rest is history. Today... On this day, as Keith said, we celebrate that Jesus, after months of pressure and threat and opposition, got on a donkey on the Mount of Olives and rode down that, that ascent 
into Jerusalem and put into motion what would lead ultimately five days later to him hanging on a cross, changing the world forever. These are pivotal moments in history and in their life, and it changed their destiny, it changed their legacy, it would change our world forever. Now, I had you turn a minute ago to Acts chapter 29. It turns out there's not an Acts chapter 29. Some of you were searching frantically to try to find Acts 29. Like, where's it at? It's got to be somewhere. Some of you had no faith in me and thought, this idiot finally has done something stupid in public. It's not true. Uh, Acts 28 ends abruptly. We're going to look at the end of Acts chapter 28. It ends abruptly. There's debate on why that is. I think the last chapters Luke was writing down like in a journal. He was recording the history. There's a lot of we language in the last couple chapters of uh, the book of Acts because Luke, the author, was along for the ride with Paul and the others. And so there's a lot of we language. Persecution breaks out in the, in the church in the early 60s. And I think Luke just puts a bow on it and sends it out. The book's over. So Acts 29 then is our chapter. Acts 29 is our legacy because that's when we start writing the story. That's when we start extending the church beyond those early years and and build on the legacy provided for us by the amazing sacrifice of those men and women who laid their life down for the cause of Christ. So that begins our chapter. So I want to end this series before we pun it to us, I want to end the series by looking at how Luke ends his, his account. So if you look at me in Luke chapter 28 and verse 30, we're going to look at these two verses fairly extensively. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house in Rome. He was in house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I don't think I've ever preached on these two verses. I don't think I've ever spent a lot of time personally focused on these two verses. And yet these two verses, I think, give us such content about what, what Paul's life was about, what the, the members of the early church's life was about. And it's a, it's a picture that's so counter to the way that we live our lives. I think it's a stark reminder of what our legacy is to be, what their legacy was. And so I want to use verse 31 as an outline for the whole message. It says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God, talked about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It starts by saying he proclaimed. You know, one of the things I've been struck by uh, throughout this series, reading through the book of Acts, if you've not had a chance to do that with us or if you've not done that recently, I'd encourage you, you can read the whole book in a couple hours, uh, is, is that the nature of influence and the nature of leadership is so different than what I think we have in our day. For years, I've seen the church as a leadership movement. You know, people I followed were, were pastors and they were strong, powerful leaders. They commanded the room. They were trained and well-read in management techniques and in management theories. I, I would go to leadership conferences as a young guy. I would read leadership books. I would provide leadership training for people in our church. And I don't say this lightly. It's, it's come with a bit of uh, prying on my own mind and heart but I think the early church wasn't a leadership movement. It was a proclamation movement. Paul spent what I believe were probably the last two years of his life proclaiming. And we would have coached him much differently had we been around there to guide Paul in the way that he spent the last years of his life. We would have told him to have a leadership conference. You've got your private leader, your house, you're rented here. The Romans are giving you that. Have Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and Silas and Luke all come to Rome to your rented house and, and give them management techniques. 
Give them leadership advice. Tell them how to cast a vision. We would have coached him differently because we see the church today in America as a leadership movement. But I don't think it was. I think it was a proclamation movement. A leadership movement puts the focus on us, specifically people up on a stage. A proclamation movement puts the more focus on him. And I think we've erred in the way we've put our focus today. Just consider this for a minute. Acts says that the early church went from about 120 people to 15 or 20,000 people in just a very short period of time. And those 15,000 people met in the temple courts. That's a large platform area where the, the apostles would teach thousands at a time. And they also met from house to house, gathering together in Jerusalem and scattered throughout the area without the apostles there to help. So just, just do the math from a management standpoint for just a minute. With that model that we use today, that means the 12 apostles would have needed to identify, interview, screen, train, deploy 1,500, maybe as many as 2,000 leaders in just a couple of months. Never going to happen. Peter's not going to interview 2,000 leaders in a couple of months as he's facing all the other pressure he was having in those days. I think they prayed like crazy in the early church because they knew they were in over their head. There was no way they could manage and control what God was doing. It was far bigger than any of them had the ability to lead because this wasn't primarily a leadership movement. It was a proclamation movement. Now I want to make sure I'm clear. I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. Leadership matters. We need more leaders in our church, more people to give influence and direction as they help more people follow Christ. But the focus of the early church wasn't on leaders. It wasn't on pastors. It was on the everyday person. And it really wasn't even on the everyday person. It was primarily about him. And we've gotten all backwards on that. Let me just give you an overview as we wrap this series up. Consider these verses. Acts 4.31 says, after this prayer, the meeting place where they were shook what would that be like if the church were to shake physically? Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just the people leading, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they, plural, preached the word of God with boldness. Notice it doesn't say he preached the God, word of God with boldness. That's great too when you can make that happen. But they, the people, spoke about God and proclaimed it's A couple chapters later, Acts chapter 6, as, as the believers rapidly multiplied... There were rumblings of discontent. So that happened in the early church from day one. Rumblings of discontent. It's not a new invention for all of us. It says the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. So there was ethnic division and all of that, religious division. Saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Nothing new there. So the 12, the leaders, called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of wisdom and spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. It was a proclamation movement, not a management effort. A couple chapters later, Acts chapter 8, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except for the apostles, the leaders, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the believers who were scattered, that's not the leaders, that's everybody else. The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. This was a proclamation movement. Paul proclaimed, Acts 28 says, 
The early church proclaimed, the book of Acts says, you and I are called to proclaim. That's the movement we've been born into. It's the movement we've joined by choice. We can't set the direction of the movement. It's already been set for us. You and I are called to proclaim. So let me ask you a pointed question. Today has a lot of pointed questions. If someone was looking over the, your life or my life, would they say about you, about me, he or she proclaimed the kingdom of God? So they had a job doing this or doing that. Paul made tents. That's what he did to, for a living. So you had a job. You had a family. You had kids to run around doing this or that, whatever. But you're, what you did, superseding all of that, was you proclaimed the kingdom of God. And if that's not true of a biographer, they wouldn't say that about you in your context, in your home, in your community, in your workplace. Why not? And if not, when's that going to change? Because the movement which began 2,000 years ago is not up for debate on how it works. This is the movement. This is, we, this is what we've been given. This is the baton that's been handed to us. And so the, the point is, this is not a church movement. It's not a pastor's movement. It's not a musician's movement. All this stuff's important. It's a proclamation movement. And that baton has been handed to us. And if we're not grabbing it, why not? If you've been called to be a part of it, you've been called to proclaim you know, I started this, this message uh, talking about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And that, that phrase has kind of gotten into our vernacular. It's that moment of no going back. Like, I'm, I'm in now. Once Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he couldn't say, hey, I was just kidding about the Civil War thing. I didn't mean to do that. Once, once they fired on Fort Sumter, once that soldier put the, the fire to the, the, you know, the wick, there's no, no going back. I was just kidding about Fort Sumter. Like, once, you've done, once Jesus rode down the mountain on the donkey, there's no going back and saying, I was just kidding about this Savior stuff. There was a moment they had, they had crossed. And I think we're called to have that kind of a mindset. I mean, in the early church, when you said, Jesus is Lord, and they lowered you underneath the waters of baptism, you were crossing the Rubicon. You were saying, I'm in. I'm in, whatever it costs me. And I think we're called to proclaim that kind of a life. Read again with me, uh, Acts 28, look at 31 again. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Second, you see that he taught. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe scripture teaches, and I think common sense suggests, that everyone shouldn't automatically teach in every setting. That's not everybody's gift. It's not everybody's setting to do that. So you can relax. We're not having a lottery later today to see who's preaching next week. So don't worry about that. Uh, that'd be a bad idea probably to do that. Uh, most of you would be mortified at the idea that you might be called on to get up here some of you would like it a little too much, if I'm being honest, right? You'd be a little excited about, finally, they've recognized my opportunity. Uh, you know who you are. Or if you don't know who you are, people around you know who you are. It's a whole separate, anyway, it's a different, different topic. Uh, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, I'm, let me just be pointed. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know everybody's not there yet. You're maybe wrestling with these claims. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're saying, essentially with your life, that Jesus is the most important person in my life. He's the most important thing in my life. He's, he's the king of kings. He's the most important person in history and the world. And if you believe that, and yet you're not teaching anyone anything about him, that's just suspect. 
I'm, I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying that's suspect. If you're saying this is who he is to me, but I'm never talking about him to anybody, that, it's just hard to reconcile that. I mean, you can start a Bible study with your friends and say, hey, let's, let's get together. You can make anything a ministry. Some of you work out with people all the time. So when you're working out, if, say, would it be all right if I just mention a verse every now and then? I think it'd be fine to do that. Or, or maybe if you've got friends and you always go play golf together, or you always go out to eat every second, every other week you go out to eat, just say, hey, I've been reading, I just want to let you know. Like you just, there's ways you can bring the Bible into, and Jesus into your relationships without being crazy. You could have a, a, a time over lunch one day a week at work where you say, hey, if anybody's interested, I'm just going to, you know, we're going to eat at my desk or in the conference room, and I'm just going to bring a verse or two, and we'll pray together. If you want to come, that's where we'll be. Eating lunch. You can do it a lot of ways. Like, I've been convicted this week, just as a church, and I, I told first service, I always make the staff nervous when I get up and say something like this, but we're going to do a better job as a staff on this regard. I, I think one of our jobs that we've not done a very good job of as a staff, and I take full responsibility, is we've not taught people to, to teach. We should be doing that better than we are. Because if you're willing to do that, we should help you do that. We should take what you're already passionate about and turn it into a ministry. And we're going to help you get better at that. You could choose to teach here with the students or the kids. We'll give you training wheels. I mean, we'll make it super easy for you. You can just help one of our teachers. You can teach one of our teachers on Wednesday night or Sunday morning. Um, last week, some of you may, may know this, so you, most of you probably don't. I didn't preach last week. Uh, so if if today's your first day, you would have had a better sermon last week. You came at the wrong time. Uh, but Gabe taught and, uh, here. And so as soon as I got done leading communion, I went back and back and helped her out. And I was late in the week when she asked me to do it. So I, I jumped in late in the week to, to do that. I didn't prepare, should have, uh, do better than me on that. I didn't prepare anything. Uh, I was just helping the teacher. I wasn't teaching. So I kind of came in on two wheels because they're already doing their thing back there while I'm in here. So I kind of came in on two wheels and, and just jumped into the class. It was a group of first graders. There was about a dozen first graders. Had a ball. Some of your kids and grandkids were in there. It was great. And uh, the teacher was teaching and they had a whole printout of, you know, teach this or read this verse. We we're talking about Lazarus. And they did it. And I was just helping with the kids. And I have always told the kids, when kids come for the first time I, and they're debating, you know, do we come in here with mom and dad, we go in there. I always tell the kids, you'll have a lot more fun back there than you will with, in here with me. And that's true, 100%. But let me tell you adults, you would also have more fun back there than you would in here with me. <laughs> Guarantee it, 100%. And you can do both. You can leave your kids there both hours. You can come here one service for you, one service to teach. And it, it's, it's critical. Like, this, I, I've been convicted this week. If you're a Christian, teaching is not an extracurricular part of your faith. We've just got to broaden our perspective. Teaching doesn't mean you stand on a stage teaching a couple hundred people. That's not for everybody. But if you're not teaching somebody something on occasion, I'm not sure that's, that lines up with Scripture. I mean, look at this verse. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone must be able to teach, must be patient with difficult people. So Paul's describing a, a servant of the Lord. The verse continues with some other adjectives, but in this verse, verse 24, there's three, and I think most Christians would agree with two of the three, but not the third. So most Christians, look at that verse, would say, yeah, a Christian shouldn't quarrel with people. That sounds about right. A Christian should be patient with difficult people. Sure, that's about right. But be able to teach, that's just not my personality. That's just not my 
That's not my thing. But I want to say that, that may be an excuse. And I think you know it's an excuse because we wouldn't accept the personality exception with the other two. I mean, look at the other two. You wouldn't say, well, I'm just a quarrelsome person. That's just my personality. I'm, I'm charming that way. So I can't follow that command. It's just not my personality. I like to quarrel. We'd say, you can't do that. Or you can't say, well, I can't, I, I can't be patient with difficult people. It's just not my personality. I have, a, I have a rammy personality, a very aggressive personality. I just can't be patient with difficult people. I'm typically the difficult person. Everybody knows that about me. It's just my personality. We wouldn't accept that. But we say that on the other. We say that, you know, I can't, I can't teach. It's just not who I am. Let me give you another one. One of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, right before Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives, we talk about how I'm riding in uh, today on, on the donkey into the city. Uh, later, what, 40, 50 days later, he's up on the, that same mountain, ascends up into heaven. And right before he says that, to a large group of people gathered, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, a large group, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Did you catch that? He's telling the church, not the leaders of the church, but the church, his followers, all of them, not just the pastors, not just the leaders. He tells this large crowd that making disciples is what they're about. That's not extracurricular. That's not like come, come to church and cheer on the pastor, Woo! throw a couple of dollars in the plate, that's what church is. And then if you want to do above and beyond, if you want extra credit, you've done extra bad sins or something, you want to be an extra credit, then you can make disciples. That's not it. It's not extracurricular. He defines making disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. And yet most Christians don't do any of that today in America. We've, we've convinced ourselves that this is a pastor movement. So the job of the church person is to come and cheer on the pastor. Hey, I like being cheered on as much as the next guy. That's great. Don't, don't stop doing that. But that's not what this movement's about. I mean, what would have to change in your life for you to baptize at least one person and teach at least one person in the next 12 months? What would have to change? And I'm assuming something have to change because most of us, most Christians today, don't do either of those in a given 12-month period. So if that's true of you, if you've not done that in the last 12 months, it's probably not going to happen in the next 12 unless something changes. So what would have to change in your life in the next 12 months for you to follow on this command that Jesus gave to us, all of us, including me, the church? And I think when I, I mean, I kind of have a, you know, they say dogs, dogs can uh, tell when somebody's afraid. Uh, pastors can do that too. And I can tell when reading this verse, uh, some of you are kind of freaked out by this. And I think Jesus understood that. That's why he said, as you're going to do that, I will be with you always. Even to the end of the age. I know this is, this is going to freak you out to say, go make disciples and baptize and teach. That's going to freak you out. So I'm going to be with you always. Now, if I'm going to say anything heresy-wise, it's right here. So take notes. Get Facebook ready. Like, this is the moment where I'm going to say something that's not true. Is it possible? And I don't know if it is, so I'm just asking the question. If, normally, I'm pretty emphatic on things. I'm wrestling with this personally. Is it possible 
That if God is with us, if we feel an extra measure of the presence and nearness of God, when we're obeying him in this way, and I believe we do, is it possible then that if we never do these things, that we're leaving some of our experience with God on the table? So when we get to heaven one day, getting to heaven is not based on doing good things or not doing good things. It's based on what Jesus has done for you and you accepting that. So is it possible that we'll get to heaven one day, having never done any of this, and we'll realize, looking back over our life, that we left some of the presence of God on the table because he wanted to be with us always in ways that he wasn't because we weren't doing these things. Is that possible? And if it's possible, is it likely? And if it's likely, what are we going to do about it? Because I think there's more available to us than what we've convinced ourselves is possible. Look at again how Luke characterizes Paul's last years. Verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It says he proclaimed and he taught with all boldness. Now let me just dispel a myth here. Because <laughs> some of you are thinking this right now. Uh, a myth, I think, out there in American church mindset is that when somebody's bold religiously, that's synonymous with being weird. Now, there's good reason to believe this because you've met religiously bold people who are weird. You've met that person, very likely. Uh, I've met that person. And so it's, it's easy to assume that when somebody's religiously bold, that means they're weird. But that's not true. That's not true. Because some of you have met bold people who are not religious at all, and they're still weird. You've met them, right? Uh, those, do, those don't go together. Weird is not a, a symptom of boldness. Weird is a symptom of somebody who's not self-aware. And a self-aware person can be bold, not be weird. A non-self-aware person is going to be weird whether they're bold or shy. doesn't matter. They're going to be weird. They're not aware of themselves. So, so God doesn't call us here to be weird Paul wasn't weird. Paul was with all boldness. The, the Greek word translated boldness there literally means confidence. He was just certain about what he believed. He was certain about what he was proclaiming and teaching. One Greek definition, dictionary cites the following definition. It says, leaves the impression that something deserves to be remembered or taken seriously. And with that definition... Confidence, boldness, leaves the impression that something deserves to be remembered or taken seriously. With that definition, I would suggest to you that every one of us is bold about something. It just may not be the Bible, it may not be Jesus, it may not be the gospel. Maybe for you it's your favorite sports team. You're bold about who the best team is. Maybe for you it's your favorite musical artist, and you're bold, you're confident about that, you're certain about that. Maybe for some of you, it's your stand, the standard of cleanliness that you describe to your children. Here's what a clean room looks like, kids. You're bold about that. You're confident about that. You, you want to be sure they remember that. Like, you're bold in that direction. Uh, but, <laughs> but we're all bold about something, right? We're all bold about something. Like, I'm confident and bold that Michael Jordan was a better basketball player than LeBron James is. You don't have to agree with me. I have a lot of friends who are wrong about a lot of things. You can be one of those friends. We'll still get along. But Michael Jordan is just better than LeBron James is. You, I'm confident that some music, country music artists are not really country artists. I'm, I'm confident about that. But here's the thing. The most timid person you know 
is, is certain about something. They're bold about something. And if you get onto that topic, their confidence goes up and their boldness goes up and their, their emphaticness goes up. Paul was certain about Jesus. And he proclaimed it and taught it with all boldness. And we're called to do that. I said a minute ago that we need to do better as a church, as a leadership in our church, preparing you to do these things. And I, I believe that. One of the things I want to invite you to that's coming up in a few weeks, we'll be letting you know more about it soon, is to a conference that I'm going to be teaching uh, here at Wellspring. We're calling it Deconstructing Doubt. Uh, it's going to be on Friday night, April 21st, Saturday morning, April 22nd. We'll give you a lot more details in the next couple of weeks. But, but the, the point of the conference is to help you be more confident so if you're a believer, uh, I want you to be more confident in being bold about what you believe. If you're not a believer, I hope to give you confidence that you can believe these things without jumping off an intellectual cliff or something. Like you can accept the claims of Christ. But either way, I want to help deconstruct the doubt that's so rampant in our culture. And we're going to have more time than we do on Sunday mornings to do kind of a deep dive on that. And I want to give you confidence that you can be bold as you go out. I think this is so, so important right now. Like, like unprecedentedly important right now in our culture. Let me just give you a couple examples. Last, last Sunday morning, we always get together as a staff at 8 o'clock to pray for the day, for each other, for the service, for anybody we know is going through some stuff. And we meet right over there in the, in the lounge at 8 o'clock. And so we met there at 8 o'clock, as we usually do. And we were going through some details of the day. And we said, hey, is there anything specific that we need to pray for, anybody we need to pray for? And one of our staff members said, can you can you pray for a young person here at Wellspring? And this young person was a child and was facing significant mental, emotional struggles. And they gave a little bit of detail about it. And it was heartbreaking that a child as young as that is facing these kind of struggles, which more and more is happening. And then another one of our staff members asked us to pray for another young person who was struggling because their friend had, had committed suicide. And so we stopped and prayed, and different ones were praying, and as we're praying, I'm just, I, I feel like God and I are just kind of talking about as they're praying, and I just, I remember thinking, this is not normal. Like, I've been a pastor for, for 25 plus years, and it's not normal to be in a setting where you have those two prayer requests as the prayer request for the day. And yes, more commonplace now than, than normal but that's not normal. And I stopped and said something to the staff afterwards. Like, this is, this is a little unprecedented, what we're dealing with right here. Then the next day, Monday, that afternoon, we gathered together, as we always do, and prayed. And we were lifting up families in Nashville who dropped their babies off at school and then didn't pick them up because they had been shot at a preschool, elementary school. And once again, we stopped and prayed. And I just thought to myself, this is not normal. It's becoming normal considered normal. It's not normal. I mean, the idea that a person, and I don't want to get into the, but the idea that a person could look down the sights of a barrel and see a nine-year-old face and pull the trigger. It's just horrifying. And yet when I look at the, the things online, when I listen to the public conversation, I'm not hearing the right voice in the conversation. The, the Bible says our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So our, that person's not the enemy. This lobby or that government person is not the enemy. Our, our enemy is, is, is demonic, who's, who's convincing somebody that it makes sense to look down the barrel at a nine-year-old and pull the trigger. 
And we need the church to stand up and be light. Far too many Christians are complaining on one side or the other about the darkness of our world as if we're not called to be the light. So the people of God need to be bold about their faith because that day when we can just kind of be wishy-washy one way or the other, that day's coming to an end if it's not already gone and the church needs to be bold about what we believe, not weird. We have too many weird Christians already. Stop it. But be confident about what you believe. Leave an impression with the way that you interact with your friends that this deserves to be remembered. Taken seriously. Because our culture needs their, our culture needs to return to a faith that we've abandoned and remember the faith that we've forgotten. But all that starts with us. Don't look to Nashville to start that. Don't look to Washington, D.C. to start that. Don't look to Hollywood to start that. It starts with us. It starts with you and me. Verse 31 says, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He did it finally without hindrance. Paul did not let anything hinder him from his bold proclamation and teaching about Jesus. So what hinders you? What hinders me? Fear, doubt, uncertainty, busyness, intimidation, lots of things hinder us from talking to people that we know and love and know and love us about our faith in a bold, unhindered way. But Paul did not let anything hinder him from his bold proclamation. And then these are the last words of the book of Acts. Like Luke just shuts the journal, they're coming after him, and he sends it, sends it out to the people, make copies, send it out. Now some scholars believe that that, that, uh, Paul then left and went to Spain, was released, went to Spain, came back. We don't know for sure. Some people think he stayed there in that house arrest and was, was killed. But either way, everybody agrees that within a sh- few short period of time after this, Paul was arrested, martyred, very likely had his head chopped off because he wouldn't stop having a bold proclamation of his faith. So the last words written about Paul by Luke in this account were that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And may that be said of me when I get to the end of my run. I mean, Paul, read through in 2 Timothy, Paul realized, I'm about the end of my run. And, And I think Paul wanted to run to the tape, all the way to the end of the tape. And so he did it, with all boldness and without hindrance. And may that be said of me, when I get to the end of my run, and that day's coming for all of us, that I ran all the way to the end and I did not let anything hinder me from my bold proclamation about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And may that be said of you. Because this, this movement we're a part of is not a pastor movement. It's a proclamation movement. And you're part of it if you've chosen to follow Jesus. You know, we, we said that we started the message by saying Jesus was there on the Mount of Olives And he had that moment where he crossed the Rubicon and he got on the donkey and he rode in and he let people get all wound up and excited and he rode in Jerusalem and he knew once I do that, there's no turning back. You know, once Julius Caesar brought his army across the creek, no turning back. Once, once that soldier fired on Fort Sumter, there's no, I was just kidding about the Fort Sumter thing. I just, uh, no, there's no going back. Once you've crossed over, there's no going back. And Jesus knew, once I get on the donkey and ride down the hill, it's over. Like, it's, there's no going back. And I think God calls us to have that kind of mindset that says, okay, I'm in. I'm in. 
And my life's going to be different now on the other side of this moment than it was before. So Paul continued to have a job. He made tents. We read about that in scripture. He continued to have people in his life that he ministered. He had things to do. He had to feed himself. and all. He had things like we all have. But his, his mission wasn't any more about tents. His mission wasn't any more about having a place to live and someplace to sleep. His mission now is about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And there needs to be a point for a Christian. And you may not be there yet. A point for a Christian where you say, you know what? My, my point now is not about my job or paying my mortgage or getting my bills paid or keeping my house clean. I got to do all of that, but that's not my, my mission now. I'm crossing the Rubicon. I'm crossing that point. And from now on, my mission is about proclaiming the kingdom of God with my life and with humility and with boldness and courage. And I want to challenge us to have that point today. Because our world is getting darker and it needs the church to be light So do not allow yourself one more time to complain on Facebook or complain on your friends about the darkness without looking in the mirror and saying, I'm I'm going to do something about that. Why don't you bow your head and let me pray with us, for us, together. If you would, would would you just stand up? I feel led to do that. Would you stand up? Let's pray standing together. God, we come to you now with all boldness and we come to you now without hindrance and we just offer our life to you. God, for those who have never given themselves to you, for those who are living like they've never given themselves to you, we hold any hindrance that's been holding us back from you and we we turn it over to you. And we boldly ask that you would lead our life starting today in a new direction. For those of us who have been following you for a while, God, we we ask that you would have without hindrance type control of my steps and days. May this be true of me. We, We declare, may it be true of me. Thank you, Lord, for leading us, for directing us. Thank you for helping us create a place where where those who who don't know you can find you here. And they can have their moment of crossing over and declaring you to be Lord and Savior of their life. We ask that to happen more and more in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, amen.